And so as we study, and we're going to start here in verse 31 of chapter 18, it seems as if there's this, a different topic coming up, right? And yeah, you, would, you may think that it's completely different if you just read verse 31 and on without reading the previous verses, but you're going to see so much of everything intertwined perfectly that the context is so key. And so this week, as we go through verses 31 through 43, we are going to see that it piggybacks off of last week's study. Again, it may seem like a different topic, but it doesn't. Jesus concluded last week uh, with his disciples um, how much he was willing to give up uh, for their sakes, right? How much he was willing to give up and um, talking about the kingdom of God and, and how much, honestly, we have to give up too. Or actually really challenging us how much we um, have to give up, right? Really challenging the, the rich young ruler of you know, you do these things, but you don't do this. And he says, you know, there's one thing that you lack. That was, that was our focus. And so he, he demands these, I want to say, you know, it's, it's pretty radical things, right? He says, you need to give up, you know, father, mother, siblings, this, that. Some of you are going to give up many things for the name of Jesus. And it seems radical. It really does seem radical. He's like, you know, you take, take up your cross and follow me. Um, but it's not. It's not in comparison to what he gives us. So what we give up is nothing in comparison to what he gives us, and also it's nothing in comparison to what Jesus, what God has given up, right? It's nothing in comparison to that. So we think that we can, you know, radically outgive God, and we think it's radical when he tells us to do these things, but coming from the mouth of Jesus and then seeing what he has done in his life, man, it's it's nothing compared to what he did, right? And so I don't think, you know, it's good to understand that comparison so that we're not here complaining and thinking that, oh, man, this is some radical stuff when in actuality it's, it's nothing in comparison to what God can give us and what God has done. And so we start in verse 31. Let's go ahead and read the entirety of the, the rest of the book or the chapter, and then let's talk about it. It says, Then Jesus took the twelve aside, speaking of the disciples, and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. And they will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. You're like, yes, the one time I can relate to the disciples. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Then it happened as Jesus was near, coming near Jericho, that a certain blind man sat by the road begging, and hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he cried out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still, commanded him to be brought to him, and when he had come near, he asked him, saying, what do you want me to do for you? So he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight, followed him, glorifying him. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And so if you remember early on in the book, Jesus, there was a turning point in his ministry where Luke describes it, that he set his face like a flint, like a rock, like, like he was stone cold, that nothing was going to stop him from the mission and the purpose of coming here on earth, 
right? Because the mission and the purpose was greater than going around and doing these miracles, right? Because the miracles did not have a lasting effect. They helped for this life and this life only, you know, healing the blind, making the, the, the lame walk and all these different miracles, the leprosy and all these things, they were good, right? I mean, isn't, isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we ask of God sometimes, the, the healing of our bodies? Maybe you guys aren't there yet because you're young and you're somewhat healthy, right? But as the years come, and even you've seen it maybe with parents, friends, family, I don't know, but sometimes we go to the Lord and we ask for the, the healing of our bodies. And I believe that Christ does want that, but he doesn't promise that. The thing that he does promise for every single person is that we can be healed spiritually, is that we can be saved from the, from the, the, the wounds of our transgressions, from sin, right? And Jesus came for that very purpose, right? So, yeah, he was healing people because he has compassion. He cares about our well-being on this earth. It's not like God is only thinking about our eternity. That is not the only thing he's thinking about. He cares about this life and this life now, right? He, he said, he, I came to bring life and what? Life more abundantly, right? So he cares about what happens here on earth, but obviously what's of more vital importance is eternity, so at some point, he changes direction of his ministry, and it says he set his face like a flint, like a rock, that at that very moment, he was going for one sole purpose, and that was to die. And where was this supposed to happen? Jerusalem, right? He's making his way to Jerusalem. So that's what we see here in verse 31, uh, that he says, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Well, what prophets and what things were written. There was many different things written about Christ years, thousands, hundreds of years before Jesus Christ, as a man, came upon this earth. And do you know what's crazy? I don't know if you want to call it crazy, because we knew it would happen, but every single one of those came to pass. And remember, we've talked about the, the, the numbers, the, the science behind that, the, the math behind that of like how impossible it is for that to happen. Like you have a, a greater chance of winning you know, the Powerball a million times in a row than you would all these prophecies coming to pass. And so these prophecies were things spoken of the Messiah to come, that this would happen. And Jesus fulfills them perfectly in the right time and in the right place. It's amazing, right? All to prove, to prove what? The very thing that this man yells out about. The very thing that this blind man, the blind man who could not see, right? There's, there's irony here that, that the word gives us. Because here the disciples don't know anything that's happening, right? It says that they did not understand in verse 34 of these things that were going to happen. But yet here this man in Jericho who was blind knew and saw that this was the Messiah. The king was here. How do we know that? Because he says, son of David. We'll talk about more about that in a, in a little bit. But that's a reference to his, his title as Messiah. And so the Messiah is here to, to save us and to bring about the kingdom of God. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. And he tells his disciples in verse 31, again, that there's all these things were written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man, meaning the Son of God, meaning Jesus, that will be accomplished. In Psalm chapter 22, I'll read these two verses to you. Verses 7 and 8, David writes about uh, Jesus' humiliation that's going to happen. He says in verse 7, All those who see me ridicule me, 
They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And as we continue to read through the Gospels and we read through Jesus' crucifixion, you see that he was humiliated, he was mocked, he was beaten, he was spit upon. I mean, to the point where people, again, they were spitting on him, they were tearing out his beard, and then they mocked the very fact that he was the king of kings, that he was the king of the Jews, that he was son of God. So what did they do? Remember, they, 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 they uh, gambled for his robe. They said, look, if you are truly the son of God, what should you do? What, what did they ask him to do, tell him to do? Yeah, get off the cross. And, what they, and, and do you see, like, do you see the love that Jesus has? The fact that he didn't just correct them and, and stand up for himself or you know, strike them dead at that very moment because they, they had no idea that how necessary it was for Jesus to hang on that cross for the salvation of the, their souls. And here they are mocking the very creator, the very man who was to save them. And they mocked him. And obviously we see this still happening today and that even happens in our own hearts. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, in chapter 53, if you read it in your own time, is really speaking to the fact of the Messiah, the Messiah to come to suffer and to, to pay for our transgressions, which is our sin. But in verse 7, Isaiah writes about his suffering. He says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Do you know how hard it is? Do you know how hard it is when you're correct? and somebody says something about you that's incorrect, or maybe it's not about you, but it's about something else, you know how hard it is to not correct that person? To not just, do you know that's like pretty much the definition of meekness? Like it's power under control. Like I would have a really hard time keeping my mouth shut, right? And not proving at that very moment, and, and some type of, and again, I think they wouldn't get the point anyways, but to prove and to say that I truly am the Son of God. But Jesus did that. He didn't open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. David writes even about the crucifixion before even crucifixion was invented. In Psalm 22, verses 14 through 16, he says, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. So these prophecies of these prophets, and this is just a few of them, right? They've come to pass. Jesus knows that he must be this suffering servant, that he must go through these things. But for the disciples, they're, they're a little bit confused because they know he's the son of God. They've seen his power. And they're expecting some, some great, you know, authoritative, you know, um, king that's going to come in and he's gonna, just going to overthrow everything. And what they fail to realize before that happens, that Jesus Christ is going to humble himself, come on a donkey, and he's going to be crucified. That's what they fail to realize. And what I want you to see is the correlation from last week's study to this week's study. Because last week, this is what, or not last week, but it was um, a couple weeks ago. In verse 14, 
Jesus says this. He says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's what the disciples are looking for. They're, thinking, they're looking for the exalted Christ. That's what the Jews are looking for. And what does Jesus come as? A humble servant, right? And just like he said for us, that if you want to be exalted, you must humble yourself. But if you exalt yourself, you're going to be humbled. So he comes in humility. And we know that after that, he will be exalted. That Jesus Christ and his name will be exalted. How do we know that? What does it say in Philippians chapter 2, in verses 5 through 11? Look at this. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Right? This is Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know what that phrase even means? Jesus of Nazareth? Like, nothing good comes from Nazareth. That's what we see in the Gospels. Like, who, who would come from Nazareth? Nothing, nobody good comes from Nazareth. This is Jesus of Nazareth. He made himself of no reputation, right? We know the Christmas story, you know, b- born in, you know, a, a barn, a cave, whatever it was. You know, there was, there was no inn, there was no room for him. Born with animals next to him. I mean, this is the king of kings, this is God himself. Again, taking no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. Do we understand how important that is? Do we understand why Jesus had to be a man? Do you understand that? Do you understand why God himself had to be his creation? If you come to Wednesday nights, you'll probably understand it a little bit more in regards to Ruth and the kinsman redeemer. That the punishment for man is meant for man, right? That's why when you look at the Old Testament and you have the sacrifices of these cute little you know, lambs and bulls, it wasn't sufficient. Why? Because it's, it's a completely different being. Angels couldn't die for us. Uh, lambs could not die for us. Only a man could die for us. Only a man could take a man's place. And that is why Jesus becomes born of a virgin woman. He becomes a, a real and true man. He had just the same, you know, hindrances that we have as humans. He got tired walking. He got hungry after not eating, right? I mean, like, he, he felt the things and he went through the things that we went through, the, the limitations of a human body, but still being perfect, right? So he becomes a man, takes our place, but because he's perfect, it is a perfect substitutionary sacrifice. It's so important for us to understand. So he says, coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself Right? And he became obedient to the point of death, even to the death of the cross. The humility brings about what? Exaltation. So in verse 9, it says, Therefore God has also highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You will not be forced to confess that he is God in this lifetime. You have the opportunity to. And by doing so, you receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which makes you right in the eyes of God, which means that you can stand before him and you can enter his kingdom. You are a part of the family of God. If you confess and you believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. But if you do not, you will not receive that reward. 
you will not receive that free gift. You won't. But you will be forced at some point in eternity's time, when you stand before him at the Bema seat, you will be forced to confess that he is Lord. Every single person, even the people that mock him, even the kids in here who don't even want to be here and think Christianity is absolutely stupid, that Jesus is not real, I want you to know at this point in this life that he is real before it's too late. Before it's too late. Because you will be forced. Why doesn't he force us now? Because then we wouldn't have free will, right? And if we don't have free will, then it's not true love. And that's not what God wants. God wants us to truly love him. And he's given us that capability of loving him because he's first shown us his love. Every week, guys, I will share the gospel with you. It's so vital and so important. It is, it's life-changing. And I think that's why this scene plays out here so dramatically. That here's this blind man who can't do anything that we can do with our eyesight. I don't think we fully understand how hard it would to, to, to how hard it would be to have eyesight and then to lose it. And what we find out from this man is that he did have eyesight and he lost it. Because when Jesus says, what, what can I do for you? What's the one thing you want? In the Greek, what he's saying is, I want to receive my eyesight back. And so here's this man who's desperate, who's in need, who's so reliant upon other people, he can't even function on his own. There's a commotion happening, and, and he's like, well, guys, tell me, what's happening? Do you guys see that in that verse? He's like, what's happening? In verse 36, he says, hearing the multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. And somebody kindly tells him, look, it's Jesus of Nazareth. He's passing by. And this guy flips out. He's like, I don't care who's going to stop me. I don't care who's going to make fun of me. I don't care what I look like, what I sound like. He says, I will shout out because I am desperate and I am in need of a savior, of a healer. So he says, son of David, have mercy on me. And it gets to the point where everyone starts to, well, I don't know if it's everyone, but people start to tell him like, dude, shut up. What are you doing? You, you sound and look like a moron. Be quiet. And do you know what he does? Even more, he gets louder, even more. Son of David, have mercy on me. And I truly believe, as I'm speaking to you right now, that there's many of us in this room who have never been in this position. This is an amazing miracle, guys. This is the last miracle that we are going to see of Jesus Christ before he's crucified. So I truly believe that there is something spectacular and amazing about this, this miracle. There's something that Jesus wants us to know, that he wants to reveal to us about himself in regards to this miracle. And I believe that it's that we have to get to the point where we are so desperate and we are so in need of Jesus that we recognize that he is the only one that can save us from our sin. This is greater than a healing of sight. Because he goes on to say that your faith has made you well. It's, an, it's, it's more of an implication to being made whole. Of being saved is what the Greek means. Not just you once were blind and now you see and you're separated from me, and you're still a sinner, and you still have to pay the, the wages of, of sin, which is death, no, you are now welcomed in the family of God. Your faith has made you whole. Your faith has saved you because you have put your faith in the right person of Jesus Christ because he's the only one that can make you whole. 
Do we see the vital importance of this last miracle before he's crucified? Do you understand that? And the thing that we see that we know that this was more than just a, a healing and a miracle of, of healing, because right afterwards, what does this man do? What every Christian does, what everyone who has experienced the grace of God, what do you do? You follow him. He followed him and he praised him. That's our life, guys, as Christians. But many of us have never been that desperate. Many of us don't understand our need for God. And I, want, I try to explain it and display it every week, but it's a matter of you surrendering to, to the work of the Holy Spirit and understanding this and submitting to it. That God is holy. God is not just a God of love, but he's a holy God. More than any other attribute and characteristic that is mentioned about God in Scripture is his holiness. The angels singing around his throne for eternity is not singing, oh God, you're so loving, you're so loving, you're so loving. You're, you're a good, good father. Do you know what it is? Do you know what they sing constantly? Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy, holy. It is the greatest attribute that he has, his holiness. And once you understand that, you will understand how disgusting and despicable and gross your sin is. And I think you guys come in here sometimes and you, you feel disconnected and you, you look like you've been defeated because you were trying to hide and mask your sin or you try to deny it. You try to think that it's not as bad as it is but it's separating you from a perfect and holy and also in God. But you have to get to the point where you're like this old man, not this old man, this blind man, I don't know if he was old. He says, son of David, have mercy on me. Messiah, Savior, the anointed one, the one who, who comes and has come. I trust in you that you can heal me. And he will. Because guys, life is not... It's not supposed to be miserable. Remember, he, he came, the, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And if you look in the world, you see that he's doing a really good job of it. And even within the church, he's doing a really good job of it. The, Satan is good at what he does, but God is greater. Like, that's not even a comparison. When Jesus died and he rose again, he was victorious over everything. Sin, death, Satan, Nothing has anything on him. And so when we turn to him, he can provide us that same victory so that we can have life that is not full of, you know, death and misery, but joy and freedom and life and life more abundantly. And the abundance of life is not a matter of, you know, I've got all the money in the world, I've got all the, the authority in the world, we know those things don't provide the joy and the happiness and the fulfillment that only Christ in eternity can provide. We know that. I think sometimes we want to test that, but it, it doesn't work. Ecclesiastes, the wisest man who ever lived, wrote that it's vanity of vanities, that it means absolutely nothing. We've talked about this previously, where the, you know, we, we search for treasures of this world, the gold, and it's nothing to Christ. 
that we wish we had all this money and all this wealth and all this gold. And he says to the rich young ruler, you know, go give it up because what I have in heaven, the things that you hold on to right now is our pavement. It's what our roads are made of. It's nothing. I have so much greater for you. And it's, it's beyond the material. It's beyond the things that this world has to offer. The things that God made in this world, it once was good. But now it's not. I mean, think about that, guys. Like, when God created us, he didn't create us in heaven, right? He created us where? On earth. And he said, it's good. But then sin entered the world, and yes, it affects us, and it causes us to die, but it causes a lot of other things to die. Speaking of nature and the world and the things that are in it, imagine living in a world where, you know, there's no poisonous snakes or spiders, or you can you know, have a pet lion, you know, that's, that's what it was. But then sin entered and, and everything got messed up. And so Christ is going to come at some point after he's already come 2,000 years ago as a humble servant. He's going to come exalted as a king and a conquering king. And he's going to set up his kingdom here again. It's going to be an amazing thing. So in verse 32... He says, all these things have been written. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the day he will rise again. Even Jesus here predicting of what's to come in the future, that they're going to kill him. That he, yes, will lay down his life of his own accord, that nobody takes it from him. But it will be of their, also their accord and their idea the Jews, to give over Jesus to the Gentiles, right? Give him over to the Gentiles. And at that point, we'll see that he is crucified upon the cross. It says in verse 34, they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Why is that? Was it because they were not paying attention? because they were chatting in the background? Was it because they were so worried about themselves and who would sit at the right hand of God? Was it because they were dumb and they weren't educated, they were just fishermen? What was the reason? What was the reason? Well, Scripture tells us they were hidden from them. God did not allow them to understand at this point. Isn't that amazing? Because I believe that God has a perfect place in time, and I don't think this is something that we take out of context and, you know, we relate it to us and thinking, well, I don't understand, so maybe God's not allowing me to understand. I don't think that's what this is saying. I think this was unique and specific right here to the, the disciples, to the apostles, because they would later understand after the resurrection of Jesus Christ at the perfect time. God had a purpose. We could speculate what that purpose was, but we know, the one thing we know is that it was perfect in its timing in its place in which it came. Who knows, maybe if they understood now, maybe if they truly understood that Jesus was going to be crucified, that they wouldn't let him, right? They wouldn't let him go. Again, they were looking for God to establish the kingdom in a physical sense right here and right now, but it wasn't the right time. Jesus had to get to the cross because ever since Genesis chapter 3, that was the purpose, right? 
That was the plan. That was set in motion. Ever since man sinned, God's like, I got a plan. I can fix that. But there's only one way. You guys remember, um, what was that Marvel movie uh, with um, Doctor Strange? And he saw all the different ways it could play out in the end. And there was only one way that it would work. Sure. Okay, you know what I'm talking about, right? Thank you. So it's, it's similar to that. That when, when this went down, there was only one path, there was only one way, there was only one outcome that could redeem man. If you guys have AirPods in your ears, please take them out. There was only one way, and that was through Jesus Christ. And that's the path that God took because he loves us and he cares for us. And he didn't create us so that we would be separated from, from him for eternity. No, he wanted us to walk with him like we saw in the Garden of Eden. That we would have a relationship with him. That we would love him. That we would worship him. That we would praise him. That we were created for his pleasure. And so it wasn't the time. But now it's the time. And they could not see. But yet... Here comes this blind man who could see. It's an amazing contrast that we see here. And have you ever wondered why Jesus had to die? You ever wonder why that was the only option, why that was the only outcome, why that was the only path to take? Have you ever wondered why, I'm like, if he's God, why can't he just, why can't he have just forgiven us without having to go through this, this hassle of becoming man and living perfectly and yada, yada, yada? You ever thought that? Like, why was this the only way? I think there's a few reasons. Because we talked about one of his attributes is that he's holy. Right? And what we find out is because he's holy doesn't mean that he's any less loving. And it doesn't diminish any other character or value or attribute that God has. But they all work together hand in hand. One of the other things that we see about God is not only is he holy, but he's fair. He's just right? Not only do we see that, but we see that he's loving, that he's compassionate, that he's gracious. All these things work together hand in hand. And so we see that if man is the one who has sinned, then man is the one who receives the punishment. And remember, we've talked about this. When they sinned, it's not like God was taken aback and he thought, ooh, what do I do now? How do I figure this out? It's not like him, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus got together in you know, the room and they're like, how do we hash this out? How do we figure this out? That wasn't the case. The consequence and the punishment of sin came because of not a law that God created, but because of who he was. It's the nature of him. That if you reject and disobey a holy God, if, if you move away from the life source of everything, the, the common, logical, natural effect of that is that it brings about death. And so sin, which is separation, which is missing the mark of the standard of God, not just his law, but of who he is, well then now you're in this side of, of death, a separation. And God knew that the one thing to redeem man, to bring him back, was to pay that price, was to stand in that position to not just forgive and forget, but there had to be a punishment. Otherwise, he wouldn't be fair. God has to be fair. 
And if he's not fair, then he's not holy. And if he's not holy, he's not loving. He's not anything that you want him to be. But he's everything that we need him to be. So he's holy, he's fair, he's just, he's righteous, he's loving. And again, an animal couldn't suffice, you know, an angel couldn't suffice, but a man only could. But a man, as men, as women, we're not good enough, right? Our, our own righteousness, our goodness, we've talked about this before, is nothing but filthy rags. Like, it, it doesn't compute, it doesn't line up, it doesn't add up, it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy the law. But yet, a perfect sacrifice, one who fulfills it in Jesus Christ as 100% man, as holy man and fully man and fully God could. That's an amazing thing. That's, and something important we need to understand that Jesus was both man and God. It's something that maybe you can't fully wrap your mind around, but you have to believe that he's 100% man or fully man and fully God. Because as man, he was able to be born, to be one of us, to pay the price, to be the kinsman redeemer, and to die. God cannot die. But man can. But man cannot rise again on, on his own. He doesn't have the power to do that. Like, it's hard enough to get out of bed on Sunday morning, right? Imagine how hard it would be to get out of the grave once you die. It's a lot harder. <laughs> but if you're God, you can do it. And you can satisfy the punishment and the wrath that God has because that has to be given. God has to pour his wrath out because he's just, he's holy, he's righteous. That's, we could have ended there. He could have just poured his wrath out on all mankind and never had a redemption plan in, process, in the process. But again, because he's loving, he wants to save us from that. Once you understand the holiness of God, you recognize your depravity, your ugliness, and how much mercy you need from him. But again, none of, some of us haven't been there yet. You don't recognize your, your, your grossness, your disgusting. You, you haven't confessed it. You've just been bottling it up and holding it back. And, and God cannot and will not forgive the things that you, you won't confess, the things that you don't seek to repent from a changing of a mind where you're, not, you're no longer going to trust in yourself and the ways of this world and the ways of the enemy, but you're going to now fully trust in Jesus Christ. And he will redeem you, he will save you, and he will bring you healing, just like he does for this blind man. And the blind man is happy, he's joyous, because he's experienced the grace of God. He's experienced the grace of God. And so, you know when you see people who are just like, you know that they know God? It's because they've experienced him. They know him. They walk with him. Once you've experienced the grace of God, it changes your life forever. It changes who you are. He, so here he goes, and he, in faith, he follows Jesus. He praises him. He glorifies him. But it says in verse 35, Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. So oftentimes you know this. Um, even now you would find people begging at intersections, you know, the highest, you know, traffic so that they see, more people see them, more opportunities for people to, to give. In the same sense, in this time, they would be standing by, you know, the gates where, where most, a majority of the traffic would be um, begging or whatever it is, asking. And here he's blind, he can't do anything, right? The only thing he can do here at this point is to beg. And so it says in verse 36, hearing a multitude passing by, he asked what it meant. He asked what it meant. So they told him that Jesus of Nazareth 
was passing by. And this was the title given to Jesus. It wasn't son of David. Those are a a big contrast between Jesus of Nazareth and son of David. A Jesus of Nazareth was not a, a title of honor. It was dishonor. In John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathaniel said to, to Philip, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because he was saying, hey, look, Jesus is here. And he came from Nazareth. And he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? They knew or they believed that nothing good could come from that town. And Philip said to him, come and see. So this was a demeaning title, a title of, of dishonor. Because they didn't know who Jesus was. They just thought he was another man. But the blind man knew. Yeah, he was blind physically, but he was not blind spiritually. He says, Jesus of Nazareth? He's not just Jesus of Nazareth. He's the son of David. And this is a title of honor. Speaking of his, his messiahship, that he knew this amazing truth about Jesus Christ. And you know what's interesting, guys? That even today, many Jews do not know the Messiah. Ironically, Whitney and I were watching a YouTube video yesterday, last night, where a guy went around interviewing uh, uh, Jews in, in Israel, and they asked, do you know who the Messiah is? And obviously, I don't know how many people they asked, but everyone on the video, they had no idea who Jesus was, and that's a, ma- a majority. Or uh, they don't know who the Messiah is. Sorry, not Jesus. They don't know who the Messiah is. And if he would, you know, delve further into the question, some of them would say, well, you know, that's, you know, it's a, Christ, it's a Christian thing. In the, the home place of Jesus Christ where he lived, where he was born, lived, and died, they don't know the Messiah. It's the same thing today as it was in his time. They don't know the Messiah. The Messiah, speaking of the anointing, the one to come, the Savior of the world. They knew who Jesus was. He's the guy from, from the Bible, but they don't see him as a Messiah. Is that where we're missing it too? Is that we, we've been told who Jesus is, you know, we can recount, you know, all these biblical stories, but do you see him as your Messiah? Do you know that he's the Messiah? Do you know that he's the Savior? The Jews, they're looking for the wrong Messiah. They don't realize that he has come, that he's here. They wanted a conquering king, they wanted someone to overthrow, you know, the politics and, and everything that was happening in this time, even now. But they got a humble servant. And I'm so thankful we got a humble servant because it's through this humble servant that our salvation was paid for. It's through this humble servant that when Jesus comes back again, he's going to be exalted. Jesus, son of David, it's a title equivalent to, again, someone calling someone the Messiah or Messiah it signifies to the Jews a person who is promised, a, the promised descendant of David who will sit upon the throne of Israel. And as we're studying through the book of Ruth, we see with Boaz and Ruth at some point when we get to it, that Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer to Ruth, and Ruth is the great-grandmother of who? David, right? David. And from the lineage of David, they knew that the Messiah was going to come from him. It's, an, it's amazing how everything flows together and ties together. So when you look at the, the genealogy of Jesus, Ruth is mentioned in it. David is mentioned in it. Many other people are mentioned in it. But it speaks to him understanding that this Jesus of Nazareth was and is the Messiah, that he was the promised descendant 
of David, who will sit upon the throne of Israel, that he is the anointed one, the deliverer. Isaiah describes in chapter 35, verse 5, what life would be like when, when the Messiah showed up, and it says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. You know what's interesting, guys, is that in the majority of Jesus' ministry, he did not encourage others to refer to him as the Messiah because it wasn't time yet. There was political implications. There was, uh, it, would, it would hinder his, his ministry, uh, effect, like, to, like to minister effectively. And so he says, not time yet. Remember, he would often heal people and tell them, don't say anything. But now it's time. Remember, it's time. He's on his way to Jerusalem where he will be crucified and he's allowing people to recognize him and to say to him that he is the Messiah. The hour has come. Remember, he has set his face. He is not renouncing the title of Christ or the King of the Jews. When Pilate questions him, he doesn't renounce it. And so when Jesus is crucified, do you know they mock him? And one of the ways they mock him, they put a sign on, upon the cross upon his head. And do you know what it says? Jesus, the Nazarene king of the Jews. It says in John chapter 19, verses 19 through 20, it says, Now Pilate wrote a title, put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. He is the king of the Jews and the Gentiles. He is the Messiah. And so this man, he cries out, have mercy on me. He was in complete need. He, he could not do anything of his own accord. And that's where we need to come to a place where we understand that we cannot do anything for our sin. We can only add to it. But we can't save ourselves. We can't do anything to help ourselves. We have to be in need like this man. And so he cries out, have mercy on me. We see this often in Matthew 9, in Matthew 15, Matthew 17, where people call upon Christ and they say, have mercy on me. And because Christ is loving and gracious and compassionate, what does he do to those who cry out and say, have mercy on me? He gives mercy. He gives mercy. But many, again, many of us have not gotten to the point where we think and know that we need mercy and we cry out to him. So in verse 39, they warned him that he should be quiet, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. It means that they rebuked him. They told him to be quiet. But this man wasn't going to let anyone keep him from Jesus. So Jesus stood still. He commanded him to be brought to him. And when he had come near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Remember, this is unique. This is the last miracle that's going to happen. There's something important to see in this. He had once had eyesight. He had lost it, and he wants to receive it again. So Jesus says to him, Receive your sight. Does Jesus heal in the physical sense today in 2023? Does he do it on command? Does he do it just because we ask him to do it? I don't think so. I think we got to understand that when we pray, it's about his will and not our will. That's really important for us to understand. Because there's many word of faith name it and claim it, preachers, teachers, pastors, apostles, deacons, deaconess, YouTubers, who will say, you just don't have the faith to be healed. 
yeah, like you, you have cancer. God can heal you if you have faith right now. You have this, you have that, you have some type of ailment. Can God do that? 100%. Will he do it? I don't know. For me to sit here and to tell you that this is exactly what Jesus is trying to get at, that if you have the faith, then you'll be made well, I, don't, I, don't, I think that's reading too deep into it and, or, or maybe even too superficial. Because again, he says, yeah, you received your sight, but your faith has made you well. God can heal you of infirmities and sicknesses now. People often take, you know, the prophecy of Isaiah 53 and think, you know, it's by his, 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 his wounds and his stripes that we are healed. They think, oh, it's because of what he's done on the cross that he can heal us of any ailment that we have on this, on this earth. And, and the implication, and if you read context and you understand, you know, if you're biblically literate just a tiny bit, you'll understand that Isaiah 53 is speaking spiritually of our transgressions and our sins. And so, yes, he can heal us in a physical sense, but more importantly, 100% of the time, he will heal us in a spiritual sense if we ask for the mercy of God. He will never hold that back. That is his will. That is his will. And so in the Greek here, when he says your faith has made you well, it literally means your faith has saved, saved you. Your faith has saved you, saved you. And again, it's only in faith in Jesus Christ who has the power to save can you be saved. It's, it's trusting in him. And it says immediately, we'll close here, he received his sight and he followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. And this is exactly what Jesus asked of us. Not for those who have been healed physically, but those who have been redeemed and purchased and healed in a, in a spiritual sense. He asks us to follow him, right? To take up our cross and follow him. And by doing so, we honor him, we glorify him, and we praise him. And so important for us to understand. So an amazing and a unique um, miracle that happens here, all for a purpose.